we are in this together. If there is one thing I've heard over and over again this week from politicians and pundits, from preachers and physicians and more folks, it is this simple, clear word. We are in this together. Now, viruses like COVID-19 do not know anything about political viewpoints or theological understandings. They can't be bullied or fought off with insults. What we are facing in this moment is something that could not care less about whether we're white or black, gay or straight, Republican or Democrat. It takes on everyone with equal force. That phrase, we're in this together, is a hope-filled one. Paul, writing 2,000 years ago to a church in, in uncertain times, Declared in a clear voice, suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint. We're in this together. It's a hope-filled word because it implies we will do whatever it takes to get through to the other side of this fear-filled moment. Now, I know there's a great deal of uncertainty out there. We don't quite know what we don't know yet, if you understand my meaning. And we don't know how long it's going to take before we're on the other side of this virus. But there's no doubt in my mind that if we do not see this as a moment for humanity, not just for Americans, but for our global community, to unite and recognize that we are together, it will only take longer to stop this disease. This is not a time to spout silly slogans like America first. This is a time for the United States of America to demonstrate we can together, despite our differences, Fight this thing. It's a time for us to stand with our global neighbors and do all we can to be strong together. On my first trip to South Africa, the mission team I was leading met with public educators, healthcare workers, and others in order to determine how we could best partner with our friends there. Most of our meetings were centered in churches. During our first week in that beautiful country, we met with a church for worship on a Wednesday evening. In this worship service, most of the hymns and liturgies were in English. The pastor gave us a long and, and very warm welcome and greeting. Next, we sang the familiar old gospel hymn. I, I suspect many of you know it. What a friend we have in Jesus. It felt good to sing something familiar with our new friends who knew, who knew the song well and sang with great vigor. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. I'd been asked a few days before our arrival to speak to the congregation to bring on that night a word of greeting, a word of hope to them from the United States. As we were singing, though, I, I folded up the paper that I'd, I'd written my, my greetings on and, and left them aside, decided to speak strictly from my heart. As I arrived in the pulpit, I said, good evening, my friends. I'm, I'm fairly certain my grandmother, Violet, who lives on the other side of the world in, in California, sang quietly to herself last Sunday, what a friend we have in Jesus. When I said that, the congregation filled the air with amens. I said, that is one of her favorite hymns. She was a pianist for a large church in her, there in her younger days. I can still see her during one of my many visits to the church when I was a little boy, sitting regally at the piano, just helping to lead the congregation in, in, in worship. I called her before I flew to South Africa. She said, Grandson, you know I pray for you every day. I said, Yes, I do, Grandma. She said, Will you please tell your new friends in South Africa I will pray for them too? I said, Of course I will. I said to them, We are in the midst of this together. 
you and me and my grandmother, we're in this work together. We are here tonight to remind ourselves our faith is one built on hope and love. We sing, what a friend we have in Jesus to give us strength to be friends with each other and with the world, no matter who they are. That congregation was a mixture of many races. Who would have thought in the apartheid days that black and white and so many others would worship together in one place? It was a visual of the power of hope and the beauty of love. Bishop Michael Curry, do you remember him? He preached a sermon in that little wedding for Harry and Meghan over in England. He reminded them in the wedding ceremony, we must discover the power of love, the redemptive power of love. And when we discover that, we will be able to make of this old world a new world. Do you hear what he's saying? It is the power of love that will go, give us the strength to, to go through this together. In another letter to another church, this one in, in Corinth, the Apostle Paul reminds them, this momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. His words are true today as well. This momentary affliction is pretty dang scary. I've been pretty worried myself. But the promise of God's love made real in our lives will carry us through to the other side of it. If, and that's a big if, if we will learn to be friends, not only of Jesus, but truly of each other. I thought of Bishop Curry's powerful sermon when I saw something he said uh, this week about the coronavirus. Just over the weekend, the head of the World Health Organization said, and this is what, what Bishop Curry quoted, we've seen this coming for years. Now it's the time to act. This is not a drill. This epidemic can be pushed back, but only, only with collective, coordinated, and comprehensive approach by us all by us all. Do you hear what a simple and clear word all is? It takes us all. We are family. We are in this together. You know, back there in South Africa when we sang What a Friend We Have in Jesus, we were reminding ourselves of a similar call to love each other, to be friends with each other, to share whatever information we have, to get through the day, to give deeply of our love and kindness, to find a way home. Or I suppose we could go to the grocery store and hoard toilet paper. Who, who knew this would be a thing? But here's my thing. Toilet paper hoarding aside. What if the church could lead the way in the fight against this pandemic? What if Christians were seen as the ones loving, serving, giving, helping, sharing, and more? Now, First Community, as Sarah has already beautifully reminded you, is in the process of organizing right now to take care of our most vulnerable members and friends and our most vulnerable neighbors in the community as well. The staff, lay leaders, and volunteers have been moving together in ways that are simply amazing to watch. But what would happen? I mean, think about this. What would happen if this way of living and being right now, the way we're treating each other with kindness and care and respect, what would happen if we friends of Jesus could finally hear this universal call to love one another and get over worrying about who is and who is out because in the eyes of God, everyone is already in. My favorite preacher of all time, Fred Craddock, he was asked once, is the church dying? Fred, in his typically understated but frankly brilliant way, replied, the question is not, is the church dying, but rather, 
What is the church giving its life for? In the middle of this well-warranted fear over the coronavirus, maybe Fred's question is our question today. What are we giving our lives for? Not just the churches, but yours and mine as well. We, we wring our hands and we worry about things that at the time seem so great and terrible and awful. When something really comes along, though, like this, it helps to give us a focused vision, a clear understanding that we can make a difference right now in the world even today. Well, trust me when I say this, the number one person I'm preaching to is the one I see in the mirror every morning. Do you remember the story in the Gospels of Jesus feeding the 5,000? It is sometimes called the miraculous feeding. I suppose it may have been a supernatural miracle. The longer I'm alive, <clears throat> the more aware I am of the mysteries and, and mystical intricacies of creation. However, what fascinates me the most about this story has little to do with any sort of miracle, but more about how the feeding finally began and was carried out. According to John's gospel, the disciples are concerned. They're concerned because they see this large crowd of folks gathering. It's a hungry crowd. And so they hastily call a, a Disciples of Christ committee meeting, and they take a vote. Unanimously, they say, we can't afford to fund this. So be it. It's done. Amen. And they conclude the meeting. And then a little boy, he's got some fish, some bread, not a lot, but he gives everything he has to Jesus so Jesus can feed those. He shares everything. The next thing we know, everybody is fed and there are leftovers for the next day. You see, miracles in the Bible, they're never the point. Miracles always point towards something else. Now, if you'd like to meet me sometime for a nice glass of wine and a long philosophical discussion about whether the miracles in the Bible are real, I'd be happy to do that. But this miracle it points to the generosity of this sweet and kind little boy and his willingness to share everything he has. This miracle points to what happens when we see not the myth of scarcity, but the reality of liberality and big-heartedness. This miracle points to the fact that generosity and hope go hand in hand. We read a lot of Brene Brown last month in that sermon series that I presented on her, on her writings. She says the opposite of scarcity is not abundance. The opposite is enough. You're enough. I'm enough. We're enough. What did Paul write 2,000 years ago? Suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. And character produces hope and hope does not disappoint. We have hope. We have a friend in Jesus. We have each other. We have enough. Bring your whole self to this work and let us take the healing power of love to the world because hope does not disappoint. Amen.